I feel like I need to say, Beth and Jarrett, um, you are loved. And, you know, if you're watching via live stream, it's okay. Well, good morning again. My name is Andrew B. I'm senior pastor here at Meadows, and it is great to see you all. We'll be in Colossians 3 today if you want to grab your Bibles and uh, just track along with us in uh, your copy of the Scriptures um, I bumped, my, I bumped my leg on a Bible up here, and I went, oh, have we put the Bibles back in the pews? But not yet, but they're coming. So if you go, oh, I didn't bring my copy of the Scriptures, then look on with a neighbor that you're comfortable with, or use your digital device, uh, whatever. But we'll be in Colossians 3, uh, really for the next three weeks. So today, next week, and the week after. Well, if you've been uh, tracking with us in this series, you know we're looking at our seven shared member values, and you may also know that uh, Mother's Day weekend I hurt my back, and I'm still kind of struggling with that back pain, and, and so I, I've started to do yoga. Yeah. I, I really felt like, you know, how about we all, you know, just stand up and do a pose or two, and wouldn't that be... No, you don't want to do that. And I've probably lost respect with some of you right now. Uh, but, but I just thought I'd bring Mr. T to back me up, okay? You know, I pity the fool who thinks yoga is just for women. Uh, it's not. That's hard stuff. So uh, if you haven't tried it, maybe you should. Maybe you go, oh, well, yoga is just that weird new age stuff. Actually, it's stretching. And uh, Aaron came across this organization called Holy Yoga that intentionally kind of merges some Christian ideas. And so Saturday morning, yesterday morning, we're out on the lawn and, um, you know, she has her actual yoga mat and I have my makeshift yoga mat because, you know, I'm just a beginner. And I should have taken a picture of that because you would have laughed even more, but uh, that's, I'm not ready for that. So, uh, But this instructor was uh, just kind of guiding us through these different poses, these different flows, as they call it, and was reading from an excerpt from Eugene Peterson, his book, The Contemplative Pastor. And it, it just struck me as a really helpful illustration for this morning. He's He's actually talking about prayer, but he's relating how in his Greek grammar course, way, way back when he was in seminary, he was learning about the active, passive, and middle voice in Greek. Okay, the middle voice uh, really doesn't exist in many languages, and especially in our culture, we don't really have a place for middle voice. We understand active voice. Active voice is this uh, thought of, I initiate an action that goes someplace, so I counsel my friend. That's active voice. That's something that you've initiated, and, and it's moving out to some place. Passive voice is the opposite of that. It's, it's, I receive an action initiated by another. I am counseled by my friend. And, and our world is really divided in active and passive voices. And, and so we, we live in a culture that is active or passive. It's, you know, oppressive or victim. It's, I've done this or you did this to me. And we find ourselves on those spectrum ends often. But I thought it was helpful what he said about the middle voice and how it specifically, as Eugene Peterson was talking, applies to prayer. But I think it applies to much of the Christian life. So the the middle voice is this voice where I actively participate in the results of an action initiated by another. 
I actively participate in the results of an action initiated by another. So I take counsel. That means I'm not just this recipient of something that is imposed upon me, but I actually receive it and I act upon it. Or or when we think about prayer, prayer is not that we suspend our will. It's that our will and God's will are joined together, that we're actively participating in what God's already doing. Or just think about the Christian life. We're actively participating in the results of an action that's initiated by another. As we've uh, thought about our seven shared values, I I think we can see this to be true. We we started this journey way back in January, it seems like a long time ago, really asking a question about what does God desire of us? And, And we could answer that as individuals or corporately. As individuals, I would just say that God desires holiness from us. We were, uh, Aaron and I were sitting in bed uh, the other night, and Asa came in from his room, and he goes, can I ask a question? He'd been reading Matthew chapter 5, and he came to the end of that section of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus says, you must be holy. You must be perfect. And Asa, I love it when my kids ask questions like, uh, what do we do with that? We must be Holy. That's God's desire. And yet when I look at my own life, I go, I don't have a shot because I'm not holy. And yet in 1 Peter, he, he refers to that and he's referring to a psalm that says that. And yet the verbs are very different. And in 1 Peter, he's saying, you must become holy. See, we're actively participating in the results of an action that someone else has already initiated. God through Jesus Christ, has initiated holiness for us. In Christ, we are holy. And we are becoming holy. We are actively participating in the results of an action that was initiated by another. Now, corporately thinking, what we said was, God desires unity. He doesn't desire activity. He doesn't desire busyness or great ministries. His heart's desire for his church corporately is unity. And so that's where we begun. And, and, and we just pointed out these four things. Unity is not created. It's maintained. We are actively participating in what God has already done among us. So God in the triune Godhead, in the Trinity, there is perfect unity. And flowing out of the Trinity into his people by his spirit, there is unity. It's not something that we create. It's something that we actively participate in. It's something that we work to maintain, but it was initiated by God. It must be rooted in Christ and the gospel. We're going to look at that again today in Colossians. It is the means to bring glory to God over and over in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. He goes, the way that my people love one another, the way that they work together, the way that they're seen among the nations, unified under my leadership, will be a glorifying testimony to who I am. That's what God says to us. 
And it's a source of great joy. When we actively participate with what God is doing toward unity, we experience joy. And that, that probably shouldn't be too hard of a concept to grasp. When you feel unified with your spouse or with your friend, there is enjoyment there. And yet when you don't feel unified, there is pain and sorrow, grief. Unity is a source of great joy. And so we've been looking at these seven shared member values we've come to trust. Last week I gave this definition for trust. Trust is a settled confidence in, reliance on, and surrendering to based on position, reputation, and or consistency over time. Trust is a settled confidence. It's this peace that comes in the presence of this thing that you trust, this person that you trust. It's reliance on, it's dependability, it's surrendering to. It's, it's just that active submission, that active surrendering of your whole self to the thing you trust, the person you trust. And last week from Proverbs 3, we said our trust should first and foremost be in the Lord. And then we said, as we grow in our trust in the Lord, we will grow to be more trustworthy and trusting of one another. Our trust in each other is the active participation in trusting the Lord. The Lord's already proven himself. It's the result of his action. He's proven that he is trustworthy, that he's dependable, that we can rely on him. That we can fully surrender to him. And as we grow in our active trust in him, we're shaped into the image of Christ. We're, we're more like him. And so we become trustworthy people. More and more trustworthy people. And then we begin to trust each other. Trust is something that can be built So last week we talked about growing in trust. This week I want to start talking about building trust. It's these blocks, one on top of another. And I think Colossians 3 gives us a great picture of how we can build trust. So over the next three weeks we're going to be in Colossians 3. Today we'll be in Colossians 3, 1 to 7. And I want to just put to you that sharp focus builds trust. Sharp focus builds trust. And we're going to look at what we should be focused on today. Next week, we'll look at Colossians 3, 8 to 15. Real change builds trust. And we'll look at the changes that God is working into our lives by His Spirit. And then on our Family Fellowship Sunday, hopefully outside on a non-windy, non-rainy day out on the lawn, we'll just look at how true worship builds trust. And that'll be Colossians 3, 16 and 17. So this morning, sharp focus builds trust. And there's two building blocks that we'll get from today. Reminding and repenting are building blocks of trust. Reminding and repenting are building blocks of trust. All right, so we're going to focus on four things today. We're going to focus on faith. We're going to focus on where our affections are. We're going to focus on where our attitudes come from. And we're going to focus on life, both now and to come. So let's jump into Colossians chapter 3, 
This is uh, right in the middle of the book, and, and Paul's really bringing to uh, a head some of the theology that he's been building out in chapter 2. And he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ. The NIV says, since you have been raised with Christ. I, I think it can be translated either way. The, the language in the Greek supports either. Um, and really coming out of chapters 1 and 2, it's already been asked of the people in Colossae, hey, do, do you think you've been saved? But I like that the ESV keeps it if, and especially right now as we just dip our toes into chapter 3. And so I, I want to just pause for a second and ask, have you been raised with Christ? In Colossians 2, Paul says, first I, 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 I want to tell you that you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in trespasses. Maybe you are still dead in your trespasses. And when you hear the phrase, have you been raised with Christ? You go, I, I don't know. It's completely possible even for people who have been in church for a long time. And, and I also want to point out that this is passive voice. This is an action that is done to us. That's done for us, okay? This is God raising us up. So in chapter 2, Paul has said in verses 13 to 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So I just want to ask again, do you realize in your life Do you recognize in your life, is it clear to you in your life that you were dead and now you're alive? Paul says this is a powerful working of God. A powerful working of God. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ being raised with him in life, being brought back from the deadness of sin is a huge difference. Is that your experience? That you can look at your life and go, wow, Jesus makes a difference in my life. If you have been raised with Christ. Anything moving forward from this verse is dependent on the result of that action. We cannot actively participate in what God is doing unless we have been raised with Christ. Here's the result of God's action. He has made us alive. God has made us alive in Christ. When you think about your Christian walk, do you think about life in you? Do you think about energy? Do you think about vibrance in you? God has made us 
alive in Christ. He's also canceled our debt. Did you realize that you owed a huge debt because of your sin? And all of us have sinned. None of us measures up to that perfect perfection. No one. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're willing to do a little self-evaluation, I think every human being can go, I'm not perfect. And yet that's God's standard, perfection. The debt of sin is death and eternal separation from God. It's being removed completely from the source of life. But God canceled that debt. He looks at Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and he goes, Jesus lived up to perfection. And he gave himself for you, and I will take his sacrifice to pay your debt. I will cancel your debt because of Jesus Christ. Is that your reality this morning? Is your heart stirred to worship that your debt was canceled? Because Christ paid it in full. Not only that, God's made us alive, he's canceled our debt, and he's disarmed our enemy. This is what focused faith tells us. We're alive, our debt's been canceled, and that takes care of guilt. And our enemy has been disarmed. That means he has no weapons that can stand against you. That means when he comes to accuse you, when you have stumbled, and when he comes to accuse you, when you've had a a negative thought, a bad thought, a sinful thought, that means when he comes to try to steal, kill, and destroy you, he has no power in your life now. Unless we give it to him. God has disarmed our enemy. Focused faith tells us that we've been raised with Christ. That we're alive, that our debt has been paid, and that our enemy is powerless against us. And so Paul starts with, hey, if you want to be able to live this out, you have to answer the question, have you been raised with Christ? And so I want to just pause for a minute, and I want to pray just asking the Holy Spirit in this place right here, right now, to just bring conviction to anyone who may say, I don't know. I don't know if I've been raised with Christ. And then we'll continue on. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. I rejoice in the truth of this portion of a verse, Lord. And it's a sobering question. And so, Father, I pray that in your grace and mercy, you would send your spirit to bring conviction to anyone who may not be able to answer with complete confidence whether or not they've been raised with Christ today. Father, we were dead in our trespasses, but the gift of God through Jesus Christ is life. Father, if there's anyone here today that can't confidently say, yes, I have been raised with Christ, Father, I pray that they would not be able to leave this place without having a conversation with someone, without looking into your word, without just bending their knee, yielding to you to say, that's what I want.
I want life in Christ. Tired of doing my own thing and trying to find my own way. I'm tired of leaning on my own understanding, Father. They, They just have to acknowledge you. Put their faith in you and trust you. Father, I pray that that would happen this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Paul goes on to move from a focused faith to say, okay, if this is true of you, then we can move on to focused affections. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This word seek is an intent, whole being search. It's often in Scripture referring to or originating from the heart. It has to do with what do you love? What drives you? What motivates you at the core of your being? What are your strongest desires? The NIV translates it, set your heart on things above. Now, I I ask my kids, what comes to mind when uh, you think of the things above? And, you know, the quick answers were uh, angel halos, uh, treasure, streets of gold, maybe, you know, fruit trees like you've never seen it, or, uh, you know, silver clouds. You know, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about heaven. But what came into Paul's vision, he says, hey, set the, set, seek the things above. And then it's as if he's looking into heaven and he goes, see, that's where Jesus is. <clears throat> when Paul looked into heaven, <clears throat> He sees Jesus. So when you think about looking up into the heavenly sphere, you know, not just gazing at the sky, but when you think about peering into heaven, when you're uh, in angst and you're seeking relief, do you turn to Jesus? Paul said, when you seek the things above, what you find is Jesus Christ. Do you love Christ? And, and, and I want to put it in the context of, um, you know, relational love. H- have you felt that tingling, you know, where you go, oh, she's kind of cute? I, I remember Aaron and I's uh, conversation that was different. We had known each other for a while, but it was an April night. We were sitting outside on the campus. I had walked her to the bank, and we ended up talking for three and a half hours after that, and I walked back to my room going, that was different. I think I kind of like her. Uh, the weird thing was she had dated my best friend just before this, okay, and that, that makes it a little awkward, right? But that sense of love began to motivate some things in me. I was like, okay, I got I to gotta figure this out. So I called up my best friend and said, hey, how would you feel if I started dating your ex-girlfriend? Thankfully, he said, I'm cool with that. And one thing led to another. And I'll tell you, that kind of love motivates a lot of things. It gets you through a lot of things. That kind of love that really stirs in your heart, and maybe it starts at your toes, but it becomes so much more. Is that how you love Christ? Does your love of Christ motivate you every day? Does your heart pound faster when you think about Jesus? I think for Paul, when he set his heart on the things above, his heart began to flutter because he was like, I love Jesus. 
He's given me everything. He's my only source of life and of hope. He's it. And we see that play out in his life in how he trusts the Lord. But Paul also sees that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. These are two distinct phrases. He he sees Christ and he's like, wow, I love Christ, but... Oh, hang on a second. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this stirs many things in Paul's mind. It stirs the idea that Jesus loves us. He's seated at the right hand of God. We're we're told in other places in Scripture that he's seated in that place after he's made atonement for sins. Jesus took on flesh so he could relate to us, so he could identify with us. He went to the cross to pay our debt. He went to the grave to overcome sin and death, and he rose again, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And Paul goes, wow, if I love Jesus, it's only because he loved me first. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Has it it moved beyond a Sunday school song for you where you go, wow, I'm so amazed that Jesus would love me. But as Paul seeks heaven, as he sets his heart on heaven, he goes, wow, I love Jesus. And seated on the right hand of God tells me that he loves me. It also tells me that his work is accomplished. His work is accomplished. He's seated in the seat of preeminence. His work is done. His act of salvation has been finished on your behalf. It's a done deal. And Paul goes, wow, I have such assurance in Christ that my salvation is bought forever. And I see him seated at the right hand of God. He's assuring that he's finished the job. He sees Christ seated at the right hand of God and it reminds us of our identity in Christ. In Ephesians, he says, you know, when I look into heaven and I see Jesus seated at the right hand of God, I I also see all the saints seated with him. So when you gaze into heaven, when you seek the things that are above, when you set your heart up there, do you see yourself in that position? Paul's emphatic that we've been chosen in him. We've been made alive with him. We're beloved by him and we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. He's willing to share his inheritance with you. He's willing to say, hey, come and sit by me in this heavenly place. Do you see yourself in the things that are above? Do you see your identity in Christ? When Paul gazes into the things above and he he sees Christ and Christ seated at the right hand of God, he's also reminded of the kingdom of God. Christ is ruling and reigning. You go, really? Yep. He's completely in charge of all that's going on right now. He's perfectly orchestrating all things to bring about what he began. His kingdom is established. 
It's not fully realized, but it is established. It is firm. It is sure. And Paul, he seeks the things above. He sees Christ. He sees Christ seated at the right hand of God. And he's reminded of Christ's love for him, his work, his identity, and his kingdom. When I say that reminding is a building block of trust, we have to remind ourselves of these truths. We have to remind each other of these truths. And as we do, trust. Trust in the Lord is built. And as we grow in trust in the Lord, we grow in being trustworthy and more trusting with one another. We need to remind each other of these truths. We have a focused faith. We have focused affections. We have focused attitudes. Paul goes, it's not just your heart that needs to be set on the things above. It's your mind. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your values and your attitudes on the things above. What happens in your mind? Now again, we have this middle voice. Are we going to actively participate in the results of an action that was initiated by another? God has initiated something. God has changed the whole paradigm of life. Are we going to actively participate that in setting our minds on the things that are above? Have you ever had a thought that caught that kind of came through your mind, that made you say, that's not me? Oh, wow, where did that thought come from? That's not me. There, there is this potential disconnection between our heart and our mind where we can be angry at somebody we love, right? Paul says, hey, make sure that these two are together. So seek, set your heart on the things above and set your mind on the things above. Do you look at things and think about things from Christ's perspective? Do you you look around at all that's going on and, and you go, okay, I want to set my mind on the things above. What's true of that? Christ loves me. He's accomplished his work. He's given me a new identity. His kingdom is sure. Do you look at things, think about things from that perspective? Or do you go, what in the world's going on? I can't believe it. It seems like it's all chaos and out of control. Okay, that's an earthly perspective. Or we could look at what are some of the attitudes. When, when, When Paul looks into the things above, when he sets his minds on the things above, he looks at Christ, Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then in verse 12, he gives us a little taste of what are those attitudes. We'll look more at that next week. But the attitudes of heaven are this, at least these things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Are those, are those your attitudes that primarily mark your life? That, that when you interact with people, is your first thought compassion and kindness? When you go to work, are you thinking humility and patience? Set your mind on things above. The the, the beauty is, 
God's already accomplished this. Like, He's disarmed our enemy. And so when a thought comes in your mind that you go, that doesn't line up with my heart. It doesn't line up with who Christ is. We can go, hey, that doesn't belong here. The enemy doesn't have authority to put that thought in my head. I don't have to listen to that voice because he's been disarmed. Focused attitudes, our thoughts. And then focused life. Focused life now. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, um, Paul is a little confusing. Peter says that too. And and so he's put in a, a juxtaposition here. He said, hey, you've been made alive. But then he says, you died. Well, okay, what did we die to? Well, we died to those earthly things, for you have died. This is an interesting juxtaposition. When we were dead in our trespasses, we were actually alive to sin. That means that sin energized us, that our passions drove us, that that's what motivated and animated our life. And then uh, even though we were dead and Christ made us alive, now we're alive to the things of God. But that means we're dead to the things of the flesh, to the things of the earth. So Paul says, for you have died to these earthly things. And your life is hidden with Christ. He's speaking here about where we find life. Where do you find life? Christ is life. I think sometimes that gets a little bit confused. That that gets a little bit bent out of shape where we go, well, no, Christ is in my life. No, Christ is life. So much so that Paul tells us that, that God has said, hey, I've hidden your life with Christ. There's this connection with our life and Christ's life. Now, here's the beauty of this verse. That word hidden means safe, secure. He's tucked it away in a, in a way, in a place with Christ where it can't be stolen from us. So you go, okay, this idea of like holiness and, you know, uh, changing my affections, changing my attitudes, living out my faith, trusting the Lord, that all sounds good, but I know myself. Like, that doesn't happen every day. And me neither. I still hate that I struggle with sin. I hate that I give in to sin. But when we do, and we will, we all will still do that because we haven't been glorified yet. We've been justified, we've been redeemed, and now we're in process. Now we're being sanctified, and one of these days we're going to be glorified where it's all perfect, and we don't struggle with that anymore, but on this side of heaven, we continue to struggle. Now here's the beauty of this verse. Your life, your life, is safe and secure in Christ. That means that nothing can separate you from the love of God. That means that nothing can take you out of Christ's hand. That means that you are eternally secure. And that can change how we live. Because when we stumble in sin, when we've broken trust, 
when we've gone down a path that we know we shouldn't go down. We can go, but my life is hidden with Christ. And in that, it's an invitation. Hey, come on back. You're still alive to me. Turn around and come on back. You're still alive and I have your life hidden. Nothing can take you from that. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Just turn around and run home. We need to remind each other of these truths. Focus life now. We can know that we have life in Christ and that it's secure, it's safe, no matter what. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Oh, that day is coming. But we have to realize that Christ is our life. Author Jonathan Landry Cruz says it this way, the the false health, wealth, prosperity gospel of the past several decades is giving way to what we might call a false identity gospel. I think that's what Paul is speaking against here in Colossians. I think the Colossians have been at risk in buying into other things will define your identity than Christ. It's rampant in our day today. Cruz goes on, the false gospel teaches that God simply wants you to be content with who you are in your social circles, in your sexuality, in your gender expression, in whatever. As long as you're being true to yourself, you're being true to God. As long as you're following your heart, you are following God. Scripture gets twisted or tossed out to ensure that people feel no pressure to conform to any kind of moral norm. They are free to set their own course. This false gospel preaches that man's chief end is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Isn't that our culture today? Hey, if it feels good, do it. It doesn't matter. We've completely unhinged from any set of moral standard. And Paul goes, that's a false gospel. You have to realize that your life is Christ. That means that Christ is not just an add-on to your life, but he is your life. This is called union with Christ. It's expressed in the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. The question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Man, what's your comfort in this life and in the life to come? It answers the question this way, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. To say that Christ is our life is to say that we cannot live without him. It's to say that Christ is more important to us than food or drink or breath. It is to say that we realize that he is the source that energizes us, that activates us, that motivates us, that sustains us. But that also means that it changes us. There's no room in the Christian life to see Jesus as just a part of your life. There's no room in the Christian life to not be radically changed by the work of Christ. Now, 
We have not realized all of that life in this life. We, we still are in that tension. But because of the good work that Christ has begun, we can actively participate in the result, knowing that he's bringing it to completion so that one day when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what does this all have to do with trust? I think when we focus our faith and our attention, our affections and our attitudes, when we focus our life on Christ, we grow in trust of God. We grow in trust in the Lord. And as we grow in our trust in the Lord, we will grow to be more trustworthy and trusting of one another. And so we take these building blocks of reminding each other of these truths, reminding ourselves, reminding our spouses, reminding our children, reminding one another of these truths in our lives. And we repent. So he goes on in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, we could read that text to go, oh, it's only covetousness that's idolatry. Except every one of these things is compared to idolatry somewhere else in Scripture. So we could say, we could read, and should read, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, which is idolatry. Wherever we're trying to find our identity, our comfort, our relief, our life outside of Christ is idolatry. And I think Paul just lists some things in culture that war at us to say, hey, you can come over here, bring your affections, bring your attitudes, bring your life over here. Let me just distract you from being focused on Christ. Sexual immorality, it feels good. Come on over, find your life right over here. Don't find it in Christ distracts us. Impurity. However we, that's a big bucket. However we put things into that bucket of impurity, whether that's our thought life or our language or our heart's desires. Paul's saying it's pulling you away from your focus on Christ. It's pulling your affections and your attitudes and your life away from Christ. Passion. Now, we talk about, you know, passionate worship. We talk about being passionate for Jesus. Paul's talking about these, these desires in us that just war within us, our fleshly desires that drive us. Evil desire and covetousness, wanting what others have. These are all things that try to pull our affections and our attention and our attitude and our life from Christ. They're all things that distract our focus on Christ. Paul's saying, war against those. Put those to death. Remember, remind each other you're dead to those things. Because it's idolatry. It would be so helpful if we just saw all sin as idolatry. It's really what it is. 
when we begin to flirt with that thought that just kind of runs through our mind, when we begin to flirt with that picture we've seen on a screen, when we begin to flirt with our anger toward other people, when we begin to flirt with words that would be hurtful. It's idolatry. We've, we've said, I'm going to find my life. I'm going to find my source for my attitudes and affections in something other than Jesus Christ. And we've taken Jesus off the seat of the right hand of the Father. And we've put ourselves or something else there. It's idolatry. And Paul says, put it to death. How? Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, the wrath of God is always an invitation for repentance. The wrath of God is always an invitation for God's people and those who don't know him to repent. And so this is written to a believing church. This is written to those that would call on the name of Christ. And he goes, hey, the way you put things to death is to repent. Okay, remember that your life is hidden in Christ. And so this sin does not define you. But repent, turn around. Come back to the one who loves you. Repent, Lord, I'm wrong. Lord, I've sinned. Lord, I've committed idolatry. And I'm sorry. And I want to find my life in you again. And he goes, you know what? Your life's hidden with Christ. It's right here. It hasn't gone anywhere. In these two, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. We have to remember that these were our life. When we were alive to sin, dead in our trespasses, these things were natural to us. And they still have an incredible pull on each one of us. Hopefully less and less and less as we grow in Christ, but they're still pulling at us. They're still able to pull at us because we too once walked in these things. But we can remind each other, hey, that's not true of you anymore if you've been raised with Christ. That's not true of you anymore if you're alive and your debt's been paid and your enemy's disarmed. That's not true anymore if your affections are stirred up by Christ. If you love him and know that he loves you. If you're fully trusting in his work and the identity that he's given you and and you're seeing his kingdom unfold, if if you're putting your affections on things above and your attitudes are flowing from things above and your life is in Christ, then we can just remind each other, hey, you're alive, you're not dead, so just repent. Come on back to God. Come on back to being anchored in Christ. So this week, I just encourage you, would, would you just call these things to mind? Now, maybe just read through these seven verses again or wherever you are in your Bible reading or if you're following along with the church Bible reading plan, would you just see if you can find something that reminds you of these truths?